So you've written this book and also Requiem for a Species and Earth Masters, and there's some pretty dire messages amongst all of that. What happens if we fall into despair? And, and I'm reminded of the great scene in that movie Downfall at the end of the Third Reich. It depicts the bunker in Berlin as the Soviets are rolling in from the east and the Allies from the west, and they had a party. They had an orgy because they're screwed. And it's called Disaster Euphoria. I'm pretty sure that you would say, don't say something just because it's not true so that we feel good. But is there a danger that we're going to fall into something like that? Oh, look, I think there's a risk of that, and some people will do that. Perhaps some people are doing it already, those who really grasp the implications of the science. But I argue that when you do listen openly and honestly to what the world's best scientists have been telling us for a long time now and are telling us with ever-increased urgency... And when you recognise that we have changed the world so much that we are going into a hot future and that no matter what we do now, we can, we can certainly mitigate it, but we can't stop it or reverse it, then the natural human response is to despair. If you cling to hopefulness that, you know, Elon Musk will invent some energy technology that will get us out of this mess, then you're deluding yourself. I mean, look, I hope Elon, Elon Musk or someone does invent a fantastic energy technology that, uh, or more particularly, we have a political rather than a technological revolution because we don't need the technology. We need the, we need the political and social change, as we know. So the question is, are we going to become stuck in that despair? Are we going to uh, engage ourselves in uh, disaster euphoria? Or are we going to go into the despair, face up to the full truth of what we're doing, and then come out of the despair, as humans do, and start working as hard and effectively as Is we can? Is that a little bit like the stages of grieving, anger, denial... I can't remember the five or seven or however many. There are something sort of absolutely into that. Yes, absolutely. And, and and I talk in Requiem for a Species. I talk quite a bit about grief and the way in which it's it, it's many people are grieving for the future. Uh, when the book came out, a lot of people were very shocked and and kind of didn't want to know about. It. When I say people, I talk. I mean environmentalists and. Uh, some scientists, I was rebuked vigorously uh, by an ecologist at a writers' festival I went to when the book came out. He took me aside and lectured me on how you know this was irresponsible to write this book, and I should be giving people hope. And I said to him, "What? So you think we should lie to people?" Oh no, 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 no! I don't believe that. Well, you know, let's treat people as adults. Let's treat them as though they can deal with the truth. And if the truth means we, we grieve, then so be it. But, as you're suggesting, Rod, grieving is a process that has stages and we come out of it. doesn't mean we uh, get over it and you know, suddenly become happy and the same again, but we get through it and we start dealing with life. Well, Clive, you manage a wry smile as you speak. But how has this affected you? How do you feel in the face of all this? Uh, what day is it today? Uh, <laughs> um, uh, look, um, 
When I wrote Requiem for a Species, uh, I did so, I spent a year writing it after I'd read one paper uh, in particular which just set it out so clearly and so brutally uh, that it sent me into a very deep depression, which was actually the natural response. And I came out of it just enough to, to write the book, Requiem for a Species. But for that year and the next couple of years, I, you know, I was deeply depressed and disturbed by the whole thing. And, and, and at one level, I still am. I mean, I ask myself, how do I talk to my grandchildren about this? I don't know the answer to that. I don't want to talk to them about this. But on the other hand, you know, one comes out of it and you, you, you get on with it and you can become effective and uh, passionate and not be absorbed in it. I do know people who have become absorbed in it. I know people who have been immobilised by the grief and the despair. And I don't blame them for that. Uh, people respond to these things differently. I'm more worried about those people who have flashes of despair because the truth comes and hits them, but they immediately suppress it, close it off, and carry on as if everything is all right. I don't think that's the responsible way to, to respond to the facts. So we on Fuzzy Logic have got a pretty good eye for talent, and I've just spotted this gentleman who I think has got great potential, and it gives me pleasure to offer him what could be his big break moment in science. His name is Robin Williams. Now, Robin, clearly you're a very enthusiastic person about science. What is it about science that really gets you excited? The story never ends. You think you've got some wonderful insight to something, and you think it's all wrapped, and next minute, an angle you've never thought of so explodes and, and the, the ideas continue and grow. So you're, you're excited by the ideas about the surprises, about the unexpected? Yeah, pretty well. When I came to Australia in 1964, that was for £10, and I, I actually knew nobody in the Southern Hemisphere, but I read quite a bit, and, and I read a few bits and pieces about anthropology and the history of people in Australia, and I read that people, human beings, had been on the Australian continent for 4,000 years. <laughs> 4,000 years. And, of course, there, there were various legends about the fact that uh, there was terra nullius and the people were just wandering around the place as if uh, they'd hardly touched it. Well, now, of course, um, I see archaeologists and they say, um, you know, we've been excavating on top of a mountain in Papua New Guinea where we found stone artefacts which are 50,000 years old. And, uh, you know, way back when I was starting actually to do science broadcasting 72 73 the big deal was mungo man or mungo woman of course that took it back to some like 40,000 or more years huge numbers of tens of thousands of years and the whole thing just became completely revolutionized now that's the kind of thing that i find unbelie unbelievably exciting in uh, the work I do and the way you, you keep seeing all these stories develop. And, and like me, are you really excited and enthused by the characters that you meet? Yes. 
I've known many of them for a long, long time. And here at the Academy of Science, where we're meeting again for their annual fest, I'm seeing people I've known for over 40 years, and it's amazing seeing the grey hairs and the wrinkles where they used to be quite bouncy and, and, and fresh. But their intellects haven't slowed down. Their, their, their brains keep going, and I've made lots and lots of friends in the field. So what's your take now on the current political and public debate in the realms where it's touched by science? Well, science is always looking for continuing funding. And whenever there's a span of austerity, when people decide that they're terribly poor, and as you know, Australia is one of the richest countries in the world with an economy that keeps getting triple A's and so on, Nonetheless, there will have to be cutbacks, and nonetheless, various programs will be cut, and nonetheless, tertiary education has had a problem uh, with a cut of over $2 billion, and this means that PhD students who were going to be nice and secure so that they could have something like a career, not anything like as well-paid as someone in business or someone in the IT trade like you, uh, well, they're driving taxis, they're digging roads, they're looking for something else to do. Now, many of them might leave science, and that's perfectly fine if they want to do that, but I don't think they should be scratching around for something which is completely different from what they'd planned, and they are unfulfilled. So the politics, it seems to me, is that science is not supported as it should be almost anywhere uh, in the United States at the moment. It's drastic what's happening and it's against the interests of the nation itself. Well, what about the quality of debate where science is where science is intimately involved, such as climate change and peak oil and population growth and medical science and other forms of technology? How, what do you think about the quality of the debate you're seeing there? I think the quality of the debate is totally dire. I think it's tragic. In the first ever science show in August 1975... I completely forgotten this. One of the interviews was about climate change and warning that fossil fuel burning might affect the way that climate goes berserk more than if we had not exploited fossil fuels quite to such extent. You know, what I do quite straightforwardly is I go to the best scientists and find out what they have discovered and I report it. Simply that. I don't seek out someone who's going to be a stirrer. <laughs> I, I seek out the people who are published in the best journals and found significant things that we can understand and which might be important. And most of them are saying we have a problem. And therefore, I find it unfortunate when various political sides decide that they will ignore that problem or even distort it. And there are plenty of politicians, not least in the United States, again, who've said it's just a hoax, it's nonsense, and I think that's most unfortunate. Do you, do you find a tension between the need to just report the science and the facts and the way the science works and to put an opinion? You you find that that's something that you get, you have to consciously pull away from? I don't pretend to have views different from the ones I actually hold. But listeners want to hear what the expert is saying and their interpretation. And it's unreasonable to imagine that a journalist who's cover, covering, what, 120 subjects at any one time might be anything other than a decent gossip merchant 
you know, I can bring you the intellectual gossip, you know, Francis Crick once called it wonderful gossip. And so I can bring that to you. But if I try to massage the gossip so that it's uh, more to my liking, then eventually you'll be found out. And that's not good. The second thing is that most journalists being fairly oh, mean and twisted, I suppose, they want to bring, bring you something different. <laughs> and so they will often seek out that which goes against the general grain. And um, so I, I will want to find something that makes you think, blimey, I didn't know that. That's very interesting. Wow, gosh. Um, I'll have to rethink where I was. And I'm co constantly doing that without being, if you like, a rat bag, without bringing you stuff that's, you know, just so plain weird, just to make a bit of a noise. But um, I try to keep out of it as much as I can, uh, simply because what people are telling me is just so bloody interesting. So given the, the magnitude of problems facing humanity now, we've got a burgeoning world population, declining world resources, are you optimistic? Does it leave you feeling optimistic or, or, or perhaps pessimistic about our future? I'm, I'm very optimistic on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays. Today's a Wednesday, <laughs> as we speak. And some of the other time, I'm pretty bleak, frankly. I'm nearly 70. My next birthday is 70. And so an awful lot of what might happen won't be for me to watch. And so in some ways I'm spared a direct involvement. But I find that uh, some of the squandering of our resources and some of the waste and some of the ways in which we're ignoring uh, the natural world and uh, its impact on us and the consequences to the natural world that we're changing that sort of thing is being done almost blind, almost as if uh, we don't care, and I find that extremely annoying. Well, Robin Williams, I thank you very much for your time today appearing on Fuzzy Logic, and uh, may it bring you great future success. <laughs> well, I'm glad to have any talent I've got s finally discovered. <laughs> You've got a big future, Robin. Thank you. Thanks, Robin. <laughs>